I would just say if um, for anyone listening, if they're interested in getting more involved with conservation, uh, I just always self, I always promote that don't think that you have to be a PhD or master's or even a college graduate to be able to contribute to the field of conservation. So a lot of times there are people who volunteer with us uh, who are very dedicated to it. I feel like passion can get you a long way. Um, and also for funders, individual donations <laughs> can also mean so much. And if you learn that there is something like the white fringeless orchid or other rare plants on your land, um, being able to communicate about that and looking out for it and taking those best management practices um, wholeheartedly and applying them to your own land goes such a long way. So I think that hopefully somebody will hear and just hopefully this will affect uh, their decisions that they make and kind of what actions they're able to take from this. Welcome to The Possibless. The Possibless is now a partnership between Pelicanus and Reverse the Red. In this series, we will highlight the scientists, organizations, institutions, and communities focused on reversing the trend of biodiversity loss and recovering species on the IUCN Red List. We're so excited for this partnership and to get these amazing success stories out to the world, spreading optimism for the conservation of biodiversity. For this episode of The Possibless, as part of our year of action, the theme is plants and fungi. We talked with Jason Ligon and Dr. Grant Morton of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. We wanted to learn everything they do to conserve and restore the flora and fungi of the United States, Southeast, and beyond. Enjoy our conversation with Jason and Grant. The Atlanta Botanical Garden does some really great work. Jason and Grant, thank you so much for joining us on The Possibless. If you guys uh, don't mind, can you please introduce yourselves? Tell us who you are and what you do for the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Please, Jason, go ahead. All right, so I'm Jason Ligon and I serve as the micropropagation and seed bank coordinator here at the Botanical Garden. And I work with uh, Dr. Grant Morton here. Yes, and I'm Dr. Grant Morton um, and I am the conservation seed bank curator. Um, so I'm essentially the the lab manager of uh, our botanic garden seed bank. I, I kind of want to start with what is a seed bank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll I'll take that one. So there are several types of seed banks. So I think it's a really good but basic question that's really good for listeners to understand. But we think a lot of times like a a doomsday seed bank somewhere where you put seeds in and you never take them out it's like worst case doomsday scenario but we also have things that we would consider a restoration seed bank or a conservation seed bank so in those regards um, think a lot of times the doomsday vault scenario would be ones a lot of times we think of ones that are that house agriculturally important or culturally important species. Um, but a lot of times with restoration seed banks, you're going to look at things that are maybe a little uh, less common, um, but you really want to use those for wide-scale restoration projects. And then you have your uh, conservation seed banks, and those are going to be ones that really focus on the most rare endangered species. 
But regardless of what type of seed bank it is, essentially it's it's a practice that humans have done for a long time. It's just essentially saving seeds for later. So the theory behind it is really just uh, if something is orthodox or behaves according to the rules, what you're doing is you're drying it out or desiccating the seed, and then you're storing it at negative 18 to negative 20 Celsius. So seeds that are able to tolerate that are going to be desiccated and stored in the cold essentially but it's essentially for whenever you want to just save seeds for a use at some point in the future so i'm envisioning jurassic park with the little vials and it pulls <laughs> the thing open and all the like dry ice kind of smoke comes out is that what we're, we're talking about here uh, sometimes sometimes yeah so again like there's a it, it they always dramatize it you know in the movies and things but you're really thinking of like liquid nitrogen so um yeah so essentially if it's conventionally stored meaning that it can be desiccated at three to seven percent moisture content and then it can be in the freezer and that negative 20c is basically like where you keep your frozen peas and carrots just like the freezer temperature that you have at home but if seeds don't behave according to those rules, then you do have other options like micropropagation um, and through seed or through tissue culture, all of those things, or you can save it in a duar of liquid nitrogen. So that's whenever you see the plumes of the liquid nitrogen uh, gas phase just kind of billowing out. But yeah, so yes, it can be, yeah. <laughs> I guess when it comes to the seed bank is, is, is ABG focused on current endangered species or threatened species or, you know, conservation important species? Or are you guys focused on a, on a, a region and say, like, we need to save everything because we don't know what could go extinct in the, in the next hundred years? I see. So yeah, so we we should say too that both of us work in our conservation and research department with in ABG. And so really our footprint of where we're most focused uh, would be for the region of the southeastern US and the Caribbean. Uh, but we do lead, uh, I would say, global efforts as well through organizations like the Global Conservation Consortium for Magnolias and other initiatives. But yeah, we typically are focused in the southeastern US and Caribbean. Um, and we partner, we're part of the SCPCA or the Southeastern Plant Conservation Alliance to really just do the regional work here. And so our department specifically is most interested in those that are the most rare and endangered. So we think of uh, NatureServe as an organization that uses different rankings. Um, they say like G1, G2, meaning that at the global level, it's the most rare. And then five would be like the least rare. Um, and then they also look at the S ranking. Uh, people think of it as a state ranking or sub-national ranking. And so we're really focused again on those S1s and S2s for any of those states or territories uh, of the southeastern U.S. So that's our main focus. But we're getting more into the restoration work as well. And so for that, sometimes if you're thinking holistically at that ecosystem, it may be important to along with uh, conserving and working with those G1s, G2s to actually do some work with the S3s or G3s in that range too. But we're not doing too many projects with like a G5 or S5. <laughs> I see, okay. Um, actually, one thing we should probably mention is Taylor went did his master's and PhD at uh, Clemson. 
So he was very close to you guys. Uh, and I, I went once to visit and I never really wanted to go to the Southeast, to be honest. <laughs> um, but when we went there, like we, we did some stuff around Clemson, but then we went over to Charleston and it's such a weird place botanically. There's, it's like, there's so many varieties that's so wet. It's like, like I, I did my uh, Peace Corps stint in Jamaica. And so it was kind of a weird, like tropical Caribbean, but not really. And there's weird palm trees that are small. I was like, I don't even know what's going on here. Because coming from Southern California, it's like, it's pretty, we're a very diverse area, but you know, there's like distinct areas here. Yeah. So Grant, can you tell them about how long you've been in Atlanta and how it compares to other places that you've lived? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've been in Atlanta was it over it's over a year now maybe close to a year and a half and I love it I love the weather I love the humidity it's so hot here and <laughs> even now like it's like what it's like 40s at night and I'm I'll be wearing shorts and everybody else is in like Carhartt coats and things <laughs> because I moved down here from Madison Wisconsin and like I had to explain, like no, it's not. It's it's not cold here, you guys. <laughs> like my phone would turn off just walking to class because it was so cold, or like my eyelash would would freeze to my face walking to class. Like I was like, no, and I I got to get down to the <laughs> to the south. I went there to study tropical orchids of all all things, but that's where that's where the experts were, so that's where I had to go. <laughs> Okay, so can you guys talk a little bit about your focal species? I know there's, um, I don't want to mispronounce all the, the scientific names, so I'll let you guys kind of say them, but like, what are your kind of your main programs and what are your focal species for those? Sure. So I'll take, I can take more of the, the bigger, broader questions and things. Um, so I'll say that for the conservation and research department, we really try to think holistically about what we can offer. So if our department had a toolkit, we don't want to just practice micropropagation or just do seed banking, but we really try to zoom out and think about what's best for those intact uh, ecosystems or habitats and having a, a viable population of these rare and endangered plants. So with that mindset, we uh, offer uh, conservation genetics. And so we try to lead with that to just get a good understanding of how these uh, species exist, what's their structure, um, and just know those and answer those questions first. And we think you can think of it as well as like NC2 and XC2. So NC2 on site at the population versus XC2 off site um, at the botanical garden or with one of our partner organizations. And so we're if you think of the NC2 things that we're able to offer, we do things like uh, habitat restoration, habitat management, um, and outplanting of plants like these orchids whenever they are um, successfully grown and ready to go back out. But then uh, complementary to that NC2 work would be some of the XC2 work like seed banking. And if you can't seed bank it, then think about micropropagation, cryopreservation, or even the conservation horticulture aspect. So actually having the full grown plants um, or larger plants at least here in our XC2 conservation collection. So we really just try to be able to promote all of those things. And a lot of times people will ask us like, what species do you work with? And 
it's hard for us to say like we work with these 10 species. Um, I would say like historically, like we did have a shorter list of what we really wanted to work with. But I think if we just kind of keep it in those parameters of the most critically imperiled or endangered species and what benefits them the most, that's really what we focus on. Um, and I will say that uh, through the uh, SCPCA, they develop the regional uh, a list essentially for the, the RSGCN, the, and it's essentially prioritizing which species are going to be most at risk throughout our region. So we would like to just kind of work towards working with and for all of those species, what most benefits them. Um, but I would say that if you, that's a broad answer to what we work with and what we want to work with. But more specifically, um, orchids are like the showgirls of uh, plant conservation. And so a lot of times we do put work uh, into uh, those focal species that are rare and endangered just because uh, they present well to the public, quite honestly. And we also have another focal group, which would be our Saracenia, so the native pitcher plants to the southeastern US as well. So those would be like two uh, groups of plants, essentially, that we are most interested in, but really more broadly, it's really anything that's in need, essentially, that we're willing to work with those. That's really cool. So you guys have built the infrastructure to kind of take on whatever's necessary for the flora of the Southeast and a little bit beyond. Right, right. I guess I kind of want to talk a little bit uh, more about these individual uh orchids and and some of the pitcher plants like i don't pitcher plants are i don't know i feel like i remember them from what's it called uh plant the, the first or maybe the second planet earth where they had like the the camera inside mm -hmm. the pit the pitcher plant where like the ant goes in and you're like you know uh, david attenborough is like basically narrating its death uh, <laughs> which he's the best at um, so can you talk a bit about, uh, is it, is it Platanthera, Platanthera, um, uh, and then maybe some of the pitcher plants as well? Yeah. So Platanthera, um, Platanthera. so yeah, Platanthera. So it's a common name for this species that we wanted to highlight. It's the white fringeless orchid, uh, Platanthera integralabia. So it is really um, a, it is a federally listed species. It's federally listed as endangered. It only occurs in a few states here in the southeastern U.S. And it's part of the section of Platanthera blephera glottis, along with some other closely related species. And what really distinguishes it from some of its close relatives would really just be like the spur length um, and the fringe length of it. So there is a white fringed orchid. And so this one is the white fringe less orchid. So the fringed orchid is a little more common, um, but still not completely safe. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of what shows off this species specifically. And Platanthera in general, are they're terrestrial orchids. So a lot of times backing way up, a lot of times people don't realize that there are quite a few native species of orchids in North America. Um, and so, yeah, of the terrestrial orchids here in the U.S., it's actually one of the most uh, showy uh, genera. So I think that's what really sets it apart and kind of makes it stand out. So I've seen them in the field and with the spike and everything, the plant can be like a few feet tall. And when it's in flower, it's really spectacular to see. So 
Yeah, that's um, it's it's something that the Atlanta Botanical Garden has a longer history with. It's been over a decade at this point. We've really been working with this species. And you kind of talked, uh, it's mentioned that, what'd you call the orchids, the showgirls of the plant world? Yeah. Um, but what is it that makes them special? Like what kind of role do they have in the local, uh, I want to say ecosystem, but you know, like what kind of, like what is it that about them that is so important other than just the fact that they look cool? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the orchids do, like, fill a very unique role in their environment in that they are going to form a symbiotic relationship uh, with a mycorrhizal fungi. There's actually a group of fungi called OMF fungi, or orchid mycorrhizal fungi, um, and uh, many people don't know this or consider this when um, thinking of orchids, but the, the orchid seed itself is not produced with an endosperm, so it's just uh, the, the embryo inside that, like, maybe one cell layer thick seed coat and sometimes i think for like cypripedium and other orchids like vanilla uh, they get a little sclerified and thicker but for the most part they're very small and dust-like so orchids have evolved to uh, produce millions of these or at least hundreds of thousands of their seeds at once uh, by not producing that endosperm Um, and They are dispersed by the wind, hopefully land in an area with a nice fungus. And then uh, that orchid seed needs that, that fungus, uh, that fungal association to, to then germinate. And I think a lot of times too, it can be kind of like, you think of the canary in the coal mine analogy, a lot of times because it requires that healthy uh, habitat with the fungi present, it can kind of be indicative of, oh, this is a a well-established area versus something that's been clear-cut or deforested, something like that. So I think in that way, it can they can be important. Um, and again, some more common uh, orchids, they are they're just out there. But it's really those more rare ones. It can be indicative of if that uh, habitat that they um, inhabit is actually healthy as well. Are what are you guys, are you guys doing research on that fungus? and the symbiotic relationship with that. So I guess, what does that look like? Like, how are you doing research on fungus in soil? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's kind of, um, yeah. So I would say that, again, we're kind of uh, like how uh, how science at large works is, again, we're, we are just building upon the shoulders of people who've already done quite a bit of work with it. So uh, we the, the Mycorrhizal fungi, essentially, for Platanthera integralabia, uh, it's already been, some have already been identified, and some associated with the uh, inducing germination have been identified. So that's just kind of existing knowledge that's out there. Um, And what we're really looking to do at this point is to sample from specific sites uh, throughout, uh, currently in Tennessee and Alabama, and actually see what, compare what is at that site to what we know is associated with germinating seeds of Latanthera integralabia. So because science at large knows what is associated with it, um, that does not mean that you can use that fungus all the time, or that that fungus is present at all of those sites. And so what we're really in the stage of doing now is just sampling from throughout that range um, and just comparing that with what is known and trying to help fill in the blanks there. 
So that's kind of the, the stage that we're at with the process. And um, we can walk you through, I guess, a few of the details, I guess, that what gets you there. Like once you decide, okay, we're going to sample from this site, what do you do? It's a, it's a long involved process. So we're, ha we're happy to walk you through that in as much or as little detail as you would like in regard to it. <laughs> I think I just wanna know, does it eventually turn into The Last of Us? <laughs> anyway sorry yeah please walk us through it i i want i'm interested because you know the fungi and plant world is taylor and i kind of both started in the plant world but the fungi world is like just blows my mind i think i have that mycelium running book somewhere so it's yeah. just like please i want to hear more about it one way of growing orchids is again asymbiotically or without that symbiote or you can grow them symbiotically, which is what we're starting to do at a larger scale. But asymbiotically, you would collect the seeds, you would bring it back to a micropropagation lab, tissue culture lab, um, and what you would do is just sow in a sterile environment, you would sow those seeds uh, with a nutrient-rich media. And you would have to do uh, a few different transfers of those seeds to successively larger containers. And typically for us, it takes about two years for it to be of size, to be able to deflask or take out of the tub and then put in a mix that's appropriate for that species uh, in our greenhouse or outside of our greenhouse. So that's kind of the, I don't know, I would say that's kind of like the control situation of even if you don't have the uh, fungus identified, you can grow it a lot of times asymbiotically. Um, and so the alternative to that would be the symbiotic germination. So I'll hand it off. <laughs> and one of the benefits of, of growing these, these orchids with their symbiotic fungi is that they often grow larger and faster. So uh, we can get them like, you know, in and out of our labs a lot faster. And we also tend to uh, be able to produce more seedlings um, with an increased uh, survival rate once we actually do outplanting. Uh, yeah, once we, uh, I guess, identify the orchids and we're collected some seeds and we're in this process with the uh, Platanthera integralabia, uh, we've collected root samples um, on a couple of different occasions. And um, from those roots, the, from adult plants, uh, we can very carefully under microscopes uh, isolate out some fungal pelotons, uh, which are just these hyphal coils within uh, the root cell structure, um, and uh, that that's the fungus from that little that little it looks like a hairball under, in, in a cell. We can put that onto uh, a petri dish and and grow it up, hopefully into a nice culture. Um, and we've done that on uh, multiple occasions. Um, we haven't quite gotten that like <laughs> that's very specific orchid mycorrhizal fungi that we're looking for, um, but j along the way we're we're collecting data on on the uh, the fungal endophytes that are associated with these orchids. Um, some of them do, when we can share a picture of this, do actually look like some of those crazy fungi from, uh, from The Last of Us. Um, my favorites are one of those. It's uh, Xylaria or the genus Xylaria. Um, and we've definitely, uh, <laughs> we'll show you that picture. It's kind of wild. Um, so we've definitely grown some very interesting, interesting fungi along the way. Um. You guys have this infrastructure and you have some focal species, but you kind of have like a geographic region and you have the infrastructure in place to kind of conserve. But do you guys have like a set of 
goals or a set of like an aim that you guys are working as a, as a, as a group, like, Hey, at, in 2050, we want to see X, or do we want to try to delist species by 2035 or something like that? Do you have any of those kind of tangible or is it just like, Hey, let's just save what we can and just like, <laughs> just to take it where we can get it. Yes. So this is well timed because our entire team of about 35 of us um, actually met all last week for strategic planning. So we actually were thinking out two to four years to be like, what are we going after and why? And get some hard language that we were able to share with our board uh, as of this week. So, yeah, we do have those types of tangible goals. Um and we go about it in very different ways. And essentially it's through developing those XC2 offsite collections here at the garden. It's that NC2 work. It's partnering with other organizations and it's training and education as well. So those at a very high level are some of the objectives that we're working towards, but really because we are uh, working with those most rare endangered species, and I should say habitats as well, um, really that is the goal, is to make them more secure and self-sustaining. So I think that a major goal of what we work towards whenever we're uh, applying for grants, looking for funding, uh, proposing a project, we're really looking at those. Um, and all the listed species, they have a re recovery actions, part of their recovery plan. Um, and so we really just relate it back to that. So for example, with the species like Latanthra integralabia, it mentions work like protecting the habitat, uh, monitoring populations for their viability, uh, backing up in XC2 collections of more, more diversity as well, and then public awareness and education for the species. So really, uh, I was look, flipping through it, and I think they said that if all of the reca uh, recovery action uh, actions are met, they would project that the Latanthra integralabia could be delisted by 2044. So that is a real goal, not set by us, but set by the federal government of what we would like to achieve. And I think that everything that we're doing is always going to relate back to those recovery action steps. Um, and we are, of course, looking at like a two-year uh, span, essentially, for the, the next proposal or the next grant or a little bit and bop of funding that we can find. So um, we like to think that ABG will be around for a long time and will be there hopefully before 2044 to have it delisted. Um, but along the way, we'll definitely be able to kind of uh, pass, uh, pass it off or to be able to advance conservation actions in the meantime. And I was just curious, like, how did you guys get into plants? How did you guys get into botany? Um, do you, you know, what are some of your favorite plants? Like, what are some of the things that like, like really trip you the hell out? So I'll say, so my, my little story of what got me into it is, so I didn't mention earlier, I was, I was, I was uh, biting my tongue, um, that I grew up in South Carolina and I studied at Clemson. Uh, and so, yeah, so Clemson was an hour and a half away from me, so it's really convenient. But I grew up in rural South Carolina in a very small town called Waterloo, South Carolina. Uh, its population peaked in the late 1800s at about 200 people. So I grew up in, yeah, I say it's the armpit of South Carolina. Uh, no stoplights, all those things. And uh, my parents have a small lot of land that's part of our grandparents, 26 acres. And so 
fun for us was just going outside and helping my mom in the garden and those types of things. And I still remember the conversation I had when I was in high school and it was time to go off to college. And my mom asking me, like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to do this. I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is, but I just like being outside. I found strange satisfaction in um, when it was planting time and over a growing season, being able to harvest those plants. Like that was just fascinating to me. Then I did not know what a micropropagation and sequent coordinator was. Um, and I think I'm still finding that out every single day on the job. But I think that what is inherently there is really those germination trials and watching a seed grow, what makes a seed grow, what inhibits it from growing. I think that there's like some strange satisfaction and it's a simple joy in just being able to watch a seed grow and develop into a full mature plant. So I think that really it's the, the country roots that got me into it. And I think it's just a very simple action of nature of how all these plants got to be here that keeps me in it. And there are a plethora of questions that are still to be answered when it comes to it. For myself, <laughs> um, growing up, if you'd asked my parents, like, what is he going to do? they would have said like, he's going to save the elephants. <laughs> Cause I think along the same, the same lines as you said earlier, Austin, like there's just so many cool things, so many cool animals. They do such weird things. Like it just boggles the mind. And that has, like animals, especially elephants when I was younger, that was it. That's all I cared about. <laughs> I could talk to you forever about them. Um, and it, that just became, became my passion. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say it definitely evolved, of course, from from elephants to <laughs> to plants. Um, but uh, I don't know, just nature was captivating when I was younger, and my parents and uh, grandparents and you know babysitters always encouraged me to be outside, go outside, play outside, <laughs> and uh, got hooked. Yeah, I have to say, I think. I had a similar experience with uh, butterfly work recently um, in the last five years or so where I never really cared. I was like, I don't really want to do butterfly work. <laughs> One, after doing years of bird work, bird work starts at like an hour before sunrise. <laughs> Butterflies, you're, that, you're, you're up and out at like 10, 11. So it's, that's really nice. But also once I learned that butterflies, when they go into their chrysalis or cocoon or whatever, they completely dissolve and then reform into a butterfly. And there's like memories that pass through that process. That blew my mind. I'm like, I'm in. That's cool enough for me. <laughs> like the <laughs> fact that that exists and these things are like, you know, tiny and they can weather a storm. And they're just like, I'm just going to float around and just hopefully I don't get eaten and survive for a couple weeks or months. It's just like, that's, and I can migrate from Mexico to Northern California or wherever. It's like, these are pathetic little animals that are just floating. <laughs> and, but they're, they're actually surviving and doing really well. It's like, that, that blows my mind. Um, so I guess along the same lines, uh, in terms of plants, like how, how did you guys did it? Was it a natural progression into conservation? Like as you, uh, that's kind of what happened with Taylor and I, as we got interested in this stuff, we kind of realized like, Oh, if we want to keep doing this, the only way forward is trying to figure out how to save these things. Is that, was that a natural progression for you guys to get into conservation? 
So I, I think so. So again, I, for me, it was the, it's the time outdoors, it's growing up in the country. But when I went to school at Clemson, I studied conservation biology. So I remember I was very, I was very methodical. Um, I think uh, Grant would agree, but <laughs> I, I was very thorough where uh, I went into it wanting to be a biosystems engineer or environmental engineer my freshman year. But I was like, something doesn't feel right. So I sat down with the course catalog and I flipped through every single page of it and read the courses that you got to take. And I got to conservation biology and I saw that you got to study taxonomy and evolution. And I thought that those were very interesting topics. And so that's what I latched onto, not quite knowing what I would do with a degree in conservation biology. I grew up not knowing any conservation biologists, but I was like, I really enjoy this coursework. And it's being able to put a name, be able to put a, a name to a to a species or to a process that I thought was really fascinating. So I think that for me, once I started taking taxonomy classes, evolutionary biology, I think with that, you see just how many species exist, how many things exist. Um, and it just gave me an innate appreciation for, for them. Yeah. I, we, we talked to somebody from Crater Lake National Park. I actually worked with her a little bit and she called it the, the green blur where when you don't know anything, you're just walking. And it's like, oh, it's just green everywhere. And it all just looks the same. But then as soon as you start to like, oh, this one has opposite leaves and this one is world. And this one has a, an umble of umbles. You're just like, it all just like becomes alive. And I had the exact same experience, but what about you, Grant? Did you, do you, is conservation something that you've always, I know you said you wanted to save the elephants, but was it conservation first or was it animals first or how did that work out in your mind over time? Um, I would say it was, it was just plants really first. Like once I got into college, um, well, I thought I was going to, you know, be, uh, <laughs> um, like, what was it political science and like Spanish double major. And then I really was horrible at political science and my parents were like, stop. <laughs> Um, and my mom was like, you know, you're good at like biology, just go that route. And I it, like, didn't even, have, it was just such a natural edit. I really didn't have to work that hard. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> um, and I just have like, also like a, a natural, I guess, a green thumb that I, I think it's natural. It's probably also like taught to me by uh, like my mother and my grandmother as well. Um, but uh, it, it, yeah, just kind of morphed into that and I also had a a friend who wanted to go to to med school um who was like became my roommate uh in undergrad and he's like you're really good with plants I need lab experience we're gonna do this together <laughs> just make me look good um <laughs> and it was actually uh in in uh, Dr. Zettler's lab who who initially like worked um with Platanthera uh labia isolating their mycorrhizal fungi and and um, doing some outplanting work with them. Um, and he obviously he was one of my professors at uh, Illinois College, just a very tiny, tiny school in the middle of nowhere, Illinois. Um, and that's, it just kind of fell into my lap there and kept with it. Can you guys talk about your role in the Reverse the Red movement? How ABG fits within uh, that, the whole idea of reversing the red? 
Yeah, so uh, with Reverse the Red uh, through the IUCN, we're really working on, again, um, their model essentially of assessing um, and then being able to act. And so a lot of what we do is already directly related to it. Uh, again, I'll mention that we're a team of 35 strong, uh, led by Dr. Emily Coffey. And so with her leadership, she sits on multiple boards and committees and I don't know when she sleeps because she's very connected in with Reverse the Red and all of these actions through the IUCN. Um, multiple people on our team are members of uh, special groups as well that actually help with focal areas for orchids, for example, or for seed banking to be able to do our part for uh, special groups of interest. So really all of our department, the Conservation Research Department at ABG really does fit within the scope and the mission for uh, Reverse the Red. It simply is our job, you know. Um... Our, our job, our role is to reverse the red. That's, that's our whole department's goal. So one of the last things we talk about is the optimism or, or hope uh, in this field. So where does that mindset of possibilism, hope, optimism, whatever you want to call it, where does that fit into your, your day-to-day, but also your, you know, your, your five-year plan meetings that you had last week? <laughs> I, I think it really fits into the 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 advocacy the public awareness uh and the partnerships so with those three things i think when they come together we're able to achieve a lot more that synergy that's created through that like-mindedness between the general public the scientists the funders the agencies, whether they're federal, state, nonprofit, all of those things. I think that it's, it is possible. We say that there's no, it, because 20% of plants across the world are threatened with extinction, there's no, we've always said that there's no reason why they need to be at risk of extinction because we have the technology, we have the know-how. Uh, there is funding in the world, whether or not it's directed at these plants in these communities. So I think that when funders hear that, when organizations hear that, I hope that it redirects their priorities um, and their resources towards taking action. Because yes, there's no reason why 20% of plants across the world should be uh, at risk of extinction. We have all of the things that we need if we just apply them uh, when necessary and how necessary to save them. He said it perfectly. Like it is, it is possible. Uh, we have all of the tools. We are able to do it, and we just have to put all those things together. It, it's just, it's so doable that I want to do it. You know. <laughs> um, I'm just really curious, you guys. Something that you said, Jason, really got my brain going, um, and it made me think. I'm thinking of orchids, and whenever we think of orchids, we think of that really great gift that you give to somebody when you're going over to a dinner party or you think of that thing that you're like oh that'd be really great in my window um or on the dinner table or something like that right and it made me think of um the monterey pine and the monterey pine 
grows basically between San Luis Obispo and San Francisco, naturally. And because of climate change, because of habitat development, because of a few other things, it is decreasing. Um, its population is decreasing. It's, uh, the, the places where it can grow are decreasing. And it's becoming increasingly more rare. It's endangered. And paradoxically, globally, it's one of the most widespread planted trees because it's fantastic for timber when you take it out of these um, environmental conditions like on California that, that limit it. And so it grows like crazy in Russia and New Zealand and they love planting it. So it has this dubious um, character, character to characteristic title of being the most one of the most endangered, one of the most rare and one of the most widespread plants on the planet. And I'm just curious, does that, is, do you play with any of those kinds of things with orchids or some of these other plants that get planted or grown for, you know, human use? Always. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that really, in our, in our heady way of explaining it, 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 context is important. So yes, you could have a world filled with pretty white moth orchids, the phalaenopsis that you take to a dinner party. But is it a species that is from a conservation collection? Meaning that if they are clones, if they are all brothers and sisters spread throughout the world, if humans were to disappear, we have caused inbreeding. They would most likely not be able to survive and self-sustain without us. So we always consider, again, genetically appropriate, uh, well-sourced material whenever we're doing our work. It's why we're doing what we're doing with the Platanthera integralabia. It's why we're, yes, we have identified these OMF as Grant has said, but are we taking one from Oregon and planting it in Tennessee? Are we taking a fungus from New York and planting it with an orchid in Mississippi? Being able to source from a site the fungus that naturally occurs, check, check, check. Yes, it is one associated with germination. Okay, put it with seeds from that same location and then put those mature plants grown symbiotically back out in the wild. That's what we're always trying to do because otherwise you're, you're, you start to get, you're, it's, you start, it's the, you start playing God for lack of a better phrase where um, we're just trying to make sure again that we're covering our tracks. We're, we're trying to always use best practices whenever we're working. Um, we don't want to translocate something, put something where it has not historically been found. So we always try to be um, mindful of those practices whenever we're sourcing things to make sure that we don't have any um, adverse effects on the populations or communities out there. Okay, hardest question of the day. What is your favorite plant? I will attempt. <laughs> <laughs> 
I will avoid it. I will be very political and say that any plant in need is my favorite. And I know that I know that I'm avoiding the question, but I really am attracted to the conundrums. Uh, whenever we don't know how to store it, whenever we don't know how to grow it, that's the most fascinating thing. So I would say right now, what really fascinates me, it's another orchid. Um, that's Isotria medialoides. It's the small world pagonia. This is one that we as a department are involved in, in multiple aspects, looking at genetics, looking at outplanted habitat restoration, seed banking, micropropagation, all of the things. Like we are really just interested with it because it's a head scratcher. Um, at large, a lot of people are still guessing and trying to figure out how it grows uh, in situ and how to get it, uh, how to micropropagate it successfully, uh, ex situ as well. So I would say of all the things, I hope that the other plants don't strangle me, but I would have to say the small world pagonia at the moment. All right, Grant, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, naturally love orchids, love working with orchids. Um, and there's a, a wide variety of plants that I really enjoy. Um, but I am going to hardline and say that I love irises. Um, and that's for a number of reasons, but mainly because uh, on in my family, like we have a number of like family plants, like f plants that have been in, in our family for generations. Um, some that have come from like whatever the old country was and uh, they've just been passed down. And so we've got, I think there's like four or five still that we still have in, in uh, like growing in my parents' yard, growing in my brother's yard. Um, different kinds of irises, different colors, different shapes. Um, and I think that they're, they're also really great because they don't keep well when you cut them. So you need to like leave them alone outside <laughs> for the, for the flowers to stay nice. So, and I think that's a good, uh, a good lesson for people sometimes <laughs> to like, be nice to the plants and like leave alone. <laughs> I always struggle with that too. Like, would like kids would ask me on tours or whatever, and finally I realized it's like, oh, it's coffee. <laughs> it's like that's that's pretty easy. <laughs> Jason Grant, thank you so much for joining us. I, that was a wonderful conversation. Um, and as a as a an exit here, can we hear about how to get involved with ABG? Um, whether you're in the Southeast, Atlanta specifically, or wherever you are in the world. Yes. So the internet is your friend. If you want to connect with the Atlanta Botanical Garden, you can easily look us up and specifically look at our conservation and research department. Um, it will come up as um, the, or on Instagram, it'll come up as ATL Botanical or our conservation department specifically would be Atlanta BG conservation would be where you could reach out. And for the younger folks and students, um, we do have internships uh, and any type of job postings that we have would be on our website as well. And for those who are in the field and interested in really connecting with us again, uh, this October 15th through 18th, we'll be hosting the SEPCON 2024. So it's the Southeastern 
Partners in Plant Conservation Conference. And so we have hosted it. Uh, it's every four years. So we hosted it in 2020, the week before the world shut down from COVID-19. Um, and so we're going to be hosting it again at that time. So we encourage anyone to look that up and just stay tuned and look out for it. But it'll be SEPCON 2024, this October 15th through 18th. <laughs> Jason and Grant, thank you so much. I, we had a great time and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about your programs and, you know, good luck with, uh, with everything. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be able to share a little bit about what we do. We want to say thank you again to Jason and Grant for talking with us and sharing the amazing work they do please check out the Atlanta Botanical Gardens website at atlantabg.org and follow them on social media at ATL Botanical and Atlanta BG Conservation. Hosts and producers are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producer is Megan Joyce. Images provided by Jason Ligon, Grant Morton, and Ian Sabo. Music was provided by A Picture Book Studios. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.